With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The X-Files, stories of life after God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Today on The X-Files, I speak with Pat Green. Pat is a former Christian pastor and recovering evangelical. Pat's claim to fame is that he is the father of Dave. He has been a successful business person, a taxicab driver, and is currently a writer and photographer living in Chicago. Pat was originally on the Life After God podcast back in 2015 when I first started the show, and I'm honored to have him back. This episode comes with a content notification. In the conversation that follows, we discuss Pat's recent suicide attempt, how he survived, what he has learned about himself, and what he wants from his life going forward. I want to express my deep gratitude to Pat for courageously sharing his story and courageously choosing life. Pat writes a column for the Pathios website entitled Transparent Expedition, where he writes in his characteristic raw, honest way about being the father of a gender-fluid child and his experience of being a recovering evangelical. Please follow his writing by going to the link in the show notes. Hey, Pat, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ryan. It's great to be back. Yes, it's been a while since you've been on the show. In fact, you were in the first season or the first uh, uh, episodes, I think even maybe the first two or three. Uh, I think I was number three. Yeah, yeah. That was, I think it was Greta and then David Hayward and then you, if I remember correctly. That sounds about right. But a lot has transpired since those four years ago. And uh, we've been chatting off and on through the years on Facebook Still haven't had the pleasure of meeting you in person, um, but uh, wanted to catch up because you've had some, you know, interesting events transpire um, related to uh, the main topic of this podcast, uh, our sort of our journeys, our lives after a departure from whatever version of God we've had in our lives in the past, um, and and then just kind of how we struggle to shape our our lives as humans, as humanists, as people who believe that this is the one life we have and we need to make the best of it. So for those that haven't heard the the whole catalog, and I guess there are probably a few of you that haven't heard the whole uh, you know catalog of Life After God, 
just tell us a little bit about about who you are, your background. Um, I know you and I are both uh, former clergy. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your life was like, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago, that would have been 2009. I was a minister of uh, a church that I was a senior pastor at. It was called LifeBridge. Uh, when I started off LifeBridge, I was with the Churches of God General Conference, which was just your general evangelical church. And I was just starting into the emergent movement, uh, which was a very progressive movement. I would liken it to uh, evangelicals loosening their ties and trying to understand the world of the mainline progressive Christian movement. Um, And... Shortly after that, I want to say 2012, um, I started having uh, a deconstruction of faith Okay, uh, because they told us to deconstruct everything and tear it all down. And um, I crossed the line and tore it down to a point of disbelief. And that was further enforced after I left ministry and drove a taxi for a couple of years. So the emergent movement, again, just to sort of backtrack on that just for a second, the the emergent movement was a group of initially youth pastors, right? Um, right, and then it became some senior pastors, and then some parachurch leaders and authors, and and various things. And and you you know, I think you summarize it so perfectly that it really was about deconstructing. And I've uh, uh, a guy named Tomlinson. I'm I'm losing David Tomlinson, I believe, in the UK wrote a book called The Post Evangelical, and I really felt like post evangelical was a great way to describe the emergent movement. It was evangelicals trying to move beyond the strictures of evangelicalism, meaning, you know, literal reading of the Bible, um, exclusive relationships, in other words, excluding, um, you know, being more aware of racism in the church, being more aware of chauvinism in the church, uh, trying to uh, analyze and deconstruct some of those things. But as you say, that deconstruction, um, you know, was, I think, intended to stop at some point, right? We were supposed to hold on to the basic tenets of Christianity, just not evangelicalism. Exactly, exactly. Uh, now, you could turn that into a little bit of universalism. That was accepted. Oh, right. But um, atheism crossed the line. Yeah, yeah. So for those maybe not familiar, universalism, uh, tell us what in like in a sentence or two, what is that? All roads lead to God. And that everyone's going to be okay, basically, mm-hmm. right? Like God's not going to punish anyone. Right. Because I think there's a big problem ethically in Christianity with the the punishment aspect of Christianity. And so we it's 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 not only the punishment, but it's the reduction of self. Um anytime mm. you do something good, all the glory goes to God. And uh anytime you speak of yourself, you are a sinner who is less and the only way you get anything is because God's loved you so much that he killed his kid. Right. Right. So you get you. Yeah, you're basically worthless the whole time. In fact, I just had a conversation um, with my friend Tim Hellman. um, That is the the previous episode uh, where he talks about this being the breaking point for him when he had children and he was faced with the task of explaining the gospel to them. And basically what that meant was he had to tell them in, you know, in childish terms that they were no good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that the only, their only hope was through Jesus and that by themselves they were, you know, horrible, uh, you know, fit for eternal punishment. 
it, it, it's 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 a tough thing to teach in a nice way, but we have this strange cognitive disconnect. The first thing that I can think of whenever you speak to that is um, the story of Noah's Ark. We have turned mass genocide into a cute kid story with animals in a boat. Yeah, we'll decorate entire babies' rooms with the theme. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. So, I mean, I think, you know, and I, I think theology, one of the ways I sometimes describe theology sort of tongue-in-cheek to my um, non-Christian friends who don't quite understand is that theology is basically people with a more evolved sense of ethics trying to square the circle of the Bible. That would be fair. Right, like trying to make the Bible fit into a modern world in which some of the things the Bible says we kind of, uh, you know, shudder at. Yeah. So as you deconstruct beyond the safe limits of the emergent movement what happened after that there was a lot of alienation um and as my child uh was coming out as uh transgender and now gender fluid Mm. um there was um a lack of understanding And it was kind of a slap in the face and also a mirror in the face, Hmm. because I remember when I was part of the Outlaw Preachers, during our 2010 reunion, we brought people that were not fully on board with affirming and accepting the LGBTQ movement. And uh, the LGBTQ people in the Outlaw Preachers were like, this is harmful for us. Don't let us into this kind of a situation. And we kept on saying that this is grace. And that they have to come to the table to the oppressor. And in actuality, that's harmful codependency. And when I saw that narrative being spoken to about my child, um, it was very, very difficult. It was very painful. And my uh, child even said to me one day, Dad, you know, it kind of brings to light that whole quote from Martin Luther King. It's not the actions of your enemies, but it's the silence of your friends. Wow. Yeah. And you had that show up right in the middle of the most important relationship in your life. Yes. And that was all going on uh, during a year that I was getting divorced and uh, the church that I had built was falling apart. Mm, Wow. So when you talk about deconstruction, I mean, it's a philosophical category, but it's also literally what's happening in your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the the analogy that I use for the God portion is Calvin and Hobbes. One day, Calvin is going to grow up and realize that Hobbes is just a stuffed tiger and not his best friend. Right. Now make that best friend your Lord and Savior, who you've been communicating to since you were 13, 14 years old. And that's painful. I went into... um, agnostic atheism kicking and screaming Hmm. yeah you didn't want to be there in other words right right i wanted all of this to be true um Mm -hmm. and 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 it was it was hard uh it was it was a very painful experience because normally when i was in times of trials i would rely on this net whenever i was walking on the tightrope and now the safety net is gone. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's a great analogy that I hadn't thought of before. But 
when you have the net, you're walking on the same tightrope. Like the tightrope hasn't changed. The height of the tightrope above the ground hasn't changed. Your abilities to walk on it haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is this this net, which, as it turns out, means quite a bit <laughs> psychologically, right? I mean, I feel like it's a really different thing to see someone do that with a net and then see someone do it without a net. Oh, yeah. Well, taking risks was a lot easier when I was a minister. Mm. And I took a lot of risks and we did some good. Um, these days, even today, I find it more difficult to take risks because there is the fear of failure. Right. Yeah. Absolute failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no do overs. I mean, Christianity is really I often talk about Christianity as a, a promise, you know, like like lots of pr promises that add up to like the promise, which is that you're safe, like you can't really fail. And right. when that's gone, life becomes much more um, like technicolor, like things get a little more intense. And you realize when you realize this is the only life we have, each day, each moment becomes so much more valuable, so much more precious. And the loss of those moments feels much more painful and and can you know lead to some real crisis in in one's life as as we both know i mean your story mirrors mine in in so many interesting ways um so i, I wanted to ask you about your your um your marriage Did, was that a result of the sort of theological de deconstruction or was that sort of a parallel track i used to say yes to that but in all honesty um it was you know, hindsight always being twenty twenty, it was two grown adults who, um, we we got married young, and yeah. our life perspectives changed, and we had a hard time, um, forgiving, and understanding, and uh, the chasm just widened to the point where the center couldn't hold. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly my story as well. It wasn't. I mean, I think my ex-wife, um, you know, would answer some questions differently if asked about her beliefs. She would answer differently than I would. I'm not sure exactly how she would answer, and it's not for me to say, but um, but we were on a similar path of, like, realizing that the Adventist church was extremely limited, if not damaging, outright damaging to people. And um, so it wasn't at all like she was this devoted believer and because i had this crisis of faith she was like i'm out of here or something like that right so it has not been a smooth road for you um <laughs> is that fair to no, say it has not up until no, it has not like up until like today even like you know you just told me before we started uh recording that you start a new job tomorrow which is sort of the the latest chapter in a a pretty difficult stretch and you also recently wrote um about how despairing your life had become to the point that you attempted to take your own life. And I wonder if we could kind of walk through some of that, because I know it begins with, well, begins. I mean, where does it begin? But one one section of your story begins about a year ago when you had really hit rock bottom. Yeah, a year ago, I was financially struggling, and I was in a spot where I was facing potential homelessness. And as I went to work every day, uh, I live in the suburbs of Chicago and I work in the city. And so I would get on the train to take it to the city. 
And every day, well, not every day, but many days, I would sit on that train platform waiting for my train. And an express train would come by about five minutes before mine. And every so often, uh, I would think about jumping. And this intrusive thought was not really from a conscious effort, and it started scaring me. So I started uh, trying to take my mental health seriously, but I wasn't yet in a space where I was ready to be honest about certain childhood traumas. So it was basically um, a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. Hmm. Hmm. And I'm still hemorrhaging inside, um, but I'm trying to mask the systems. symptoms, but I'm going to see my therapist. I'm going to, um, I'm taking my meds, so on and so forth. Uh, July of this year, I had lost a job and, um, I couldn't afford Cobra anymore. So I was off the meds and no longer seeing my therapist. Um, I, don't want to get into all of the interpersonal details of my life, but um, then uh, on Veterans Day of this year, uh, there was a suicide attempt. Mm. Um, I had um, a mother that uh, was in home hospice with me that I was caring for. Mm. Uh, She's still alive, but she's at a hospice center now. Um, I had a relationship, uh, a romantic one that had been going on for three years that was nearing the end. And a lot of that had to do with me. And, um, uh, you know, whenever you get closed off, you are not honest. And um, I felt that train coming to the station, if you will. And... um, so many other pressures. I just, I woke up and I had this moment where I instinctively said, screw it. And, um, uh, I'm not going to name the medicine because I don't want to inspire others, but I took, uh, over 10 times the normal dosage of this medicine and followed it with a fireball chaser. Mm. Wow. You wrote about this in your blog recently, um, which is why I would have the temerity to even ask you these things. Um, I have no problem discussing it. Okay, good. Yeah. And, and of course, I, I knew that already going in, but, um, you know, these are sensitive subjects. And, um, of course, we, um, you know, in the intro to this episode, I, I um, was sure to share a, a content notification, you know, because we don't, we don't want to, um, you know, cause harm also by, by relating these things either to anyone listening or to you, you know. I, and so I, I know that you're processing this with others and, and not just out there on your own. Um, so you obviously are still here, which I'm so grateful for. And I know like hundreds of people that you know in real life and also just people like me you haven't actually met in real life on Facebook and and social networks that are just so happy that you're still here. How did you, how did you make it through? Um, around the time um, that I had taken the meds, um, my now ex-partner uh, sent me a text asking me if everything was okay, and I lied and said, yes, I'll talk to you later. And then uh, my child, uh, Dave, 
sent me a picture that they drew and said, hey, do you like this? And I'm like, yes, I love it. And uh, about half an hour later, and I'm guessing there, I really regretted what I had done here. Mm. And I could feel the effects of the medication taking place. Mm. Uh, So I tried to go to the bathroom to uh, regurgitate the meds. And um, that was difficult to do. Uh, But I got a little bit out, enough to stay alive, I suspect. Yeah. And uh, for 12 hours, I was fighting to remain conscious. Mm. Uh, My hands were shaky, and I couldn't walk until about 3 that afternoon. Mm. And then around 7 o'clock in the afternoon, 8 o'clock, or 7 or 8 in the evening, um, I've got eight police at my doorstep because somebody called in a wellness check. And um, I told them what. I'd done. And uh, next thing I know, I'm being whisked away in an ambulance uh, with two paramedics um, trying to make sure that I was stable. And before we started the psych portion of the hospital visit, for two days, I was um, in the hospital proper as they got my uh, uh, my kidney levels, my uh, liver enzymes, my blood sugar uh, and, uh, my white blood cell count was just, everything was off kilter. Wow. And so I had to be medically stabilized before they could, uh, put me in to, um, the mental health wing for the beginning of the bottom. Right. Wow. Well, just once again, just so happy that you got that phone call or that, that call came in from, from your loved ones that sent those officers to your door and that you're here, you know, and, and, and healthy, like you're physically stable and doing well, you're home now, I guess. And, and, um, like looking back on, on the last few weeks, I mean, what do you, what's the takeaway for you? And I know we're also facing a, a crisis in our culture, um, around depression and loneliness, um, and suicide Um, what's, I mean, I've, I know so many people haven't been to that brink, but others, many others have, what, what is your takeaway from, from your experience? On a personal level, I'm going to answer this two ways. First on the personal level, then on the broader level, on a personal level, um, I'm learning what trauma from childhood, uh, does to a person and how if you don't face that and don't own it um and disclose it you're 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 just kind of building your life on like a drunken game of jenga um mm. you're taking pieces from the bottom and putting them up top and everything gets less and less stable and it will eventually crumble um so i'm learning a lot about ptsd and complex trauma which is something that i'm dealing with right now mm. and i'm also learning what I have done to my self-esteem and my depersonalization. Uh, And, you know, I'll let you ask questions about that later, but the broader world, I'm learning how deep of a problem this is for so many. Hmm. Um, You know, according to the CDC, this is the second leading cause of death for teenagers. And uh, for middle-aged men, it's one of the highest causes of death too. Right. And it's not something we're talking about. We treat uh, mental health with a stigma 
and we treat it separately from the rest of the category of the human existence, but it all ties in with the socioeconomic, uh, with equality, with, uh, with, with healthcare. It's, it's all a part of the deal. So I know as recently as the Vietnam War, you know, the 70s, early 70s, we, we didn't even really have words for this. We called it shell shock. Uh, or maybe by, I may have my facts wrong, maybe by the Vietnam War we were calling it post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but that's still quite recent. That's within our lifetime. We've even known what to do with this or how the body responds to trauma. Um, and then, of course, you add on to that, as you've mentioned, the for, especially for men, this um, socialization that most American men, um, straight men especially have been through is to be tough, to be strong, to not really talk about our feelings, to uh, feel that we should be able to handle whatever it is we're facing on our own. And if we're not able to, then that means there's really something wrong with us. And somehow that wrongness is tied to our masculinity or something like that. And um, you know, again, I was just talking to Tim about some of these issues. And I was just talking to Brian Peck a couple episodes ago about trauma and um, I, I think it's going to take a while for us to even know, um, like, what is, tr- like, what, how do we know if we've had this experience of trauma? So I personally, I know I've experienced trauma um, or abuse that led to trauma in my experience, but I still don't quite know how that manifests for me. Well, in my case, uh, the thing that I had to come clean on is I've always spoken to the fact that I was abused when I was a child. But uh, what I've never said is that from the age of nine to 13, um, I was with a stepfather where he and his best friend were pedophiles. Oh my. And this was sustained torture that also came along with physical abuse at a very tender age. And then it happened again when I was 16 at the hands of a youth leader in the church I was attending. Mm. And is this something you've always had in your memory or had you blocked it out and it's only recently uh, sort of returned to you? No, there's been no uh, resurfacing of memories. It's it's not things I've forgotten. I was always aware of them. I just never talked about them. Understandably, right? I mean, it's it's a horrible experience and not something you would naturally want to talk about. And, 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 you know, again, with what you spoke of with toxic masculinity, uh, it was, it felt emasculating as a man to admit to that. Right. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, under what circumstances were you able to finally start talking about it? After I attempted suicide. So just that recently? Yeah. That was when I, uh, started telling the therapists in the hospital, this happened. Mm. And once I started saying this happened, then the flashbacks occurred and, um, and it was just nightmare footage. I couldn't turn off. And, um, they told me that this surfacing is common. And when you have that and you're in an untreated state and you're finally disclosing, um, the body reacts as if it is happening mm. now. Yeah, I've heard that. Wow. So all those years of, of therapy, 
And you never told anyone? No, I kept that part to myself, which made it hard for them to treat me right. properly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I can relate and I don't, you know, I know um, probably others listening can relate. I remember distinctly having the feeling, the thought, you know, I should tell my therapist about X and and thinking, no, that's too scary, too risky, like she'll judge me, you know, which is my big fear in life is, you know, being judged and, and rejected. And then thinking, well, but I'm paying her this really good price you know, I'm really wasting my money if I don't tell her the thing that's the like perhaps the most important thing for her to know in order to help me. Uh, and still, it took a long time, you know, to to take that risk, as you said earlier about taking risks. I mean, this is a huge risk for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And it's one of the reasons why I'm writing about it so openly mm. is I believe that there um I wrote a piece in my column about Dolores Aroidian after she passed. Uh, she was the lead singer of the Cranberries. Right. And she was very open about her bipolar depression. She was open about her suicidal um, uh, ideations and addiction and so many other things. And she was a personal hero of mine. What she gave me was a Me Too factor. So as I write about this, I'm having other people come to the forefront and approach me and say, me too, and thank you for writing this. Me too, I understand what it feels like to not want to live anymore. I know what that trauma feels like that you're going through. Hey, I'm being treated for PTSD. I'm a couple years ahead of you. Here's what's going to come down the road. You're off to a great start, kid. Yeah, and it gets better. Is that part of the message you're hearing? It gets better, but uh, it's always going to be a rough and bumpy road. Right. Yeah, there's no, like, pill you can take that just makes it go away. No, no. And uh, it's going to take a long time with a therapist who feels safe enough to start going back into the trauma points. Um, I have spent an entire lifetime conditioned uh my, my amygdala has basically taken over even when there is no danger i'm always in fight and flight mode yeah brian peck so, talks about that that is so cute yeah. keep going yeah that's amazing no and, and 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 it has affected so much of my life um my romantic relationships i've always had one foot out the door um and i have also put myself into positions where i allow things to happen that are hurtful to me and uh, the other thing is um, job insecurity. Ever since I left ministry, um, I have uh, had, other than the taxi, most of my jobs were short-lived because I had one foot out the door and I felt unsafe. Right. And I had to work past that. And that's a process. Mm -hmm. And I'm still not done with it, but every day is a practice of um, presence, Say more about presence. Uh, presence. Um, be here now mm. is a short way to say it. Uh, you spend If you spend most of your life ruminating in the past and fearing what lies around the bend, you're never here. And my brain has been wired since childhood to think a certain way. The good news is I'm finding out that you can rewire your brain, but it takes a conscious effort and so you have to spend every day, uh, am I actually in danger? No. So you have to get those, uh, those, those, those connections 
uh, between the higher brain functions and the base brain functions to start working. And I'm going to describe it poorly, but there's limited energy that our brain can do in building those synapses. So the more energy that you put into that and consciously build those synapses that are more healthy, um, the less room there is for the brain to do the unhealthy ones. But it's a long process because you're rewiring a house that has been short-circuiting for decades. Yeah, and it takes time, right? It doesn't, it doesn't happen necessarily quickly. Exactly, exactly. And you, you talked a, mo- a moment ago about um, your self-esteem, and then you said more recently you talked about allowing things to happen in your life that were harmful to you, like letting those things happen. I, I wanted to ask you if, you if you see a connection between those and if you see a connection between those and the sort of the script that you were given from your faith. And I don't certainly don't mean to to like lead the witness, as we would say. I don't if the answer is no, that's fine. But I just I'm wondering if there's a uh, a faith component to uh, the sense of self-esteem that you describe. Here's what I will say. Um, I already had this component of low self-esteem and what I call personality tofu, instead of having my own individual self, <laughs> I absorbed the flavors around me. Mm. Um, what church did, uh, there, were, there was some good and bad. The good was it gave me a structure that I didn't have. There was a good and a bad. There was a line. And I needed those boundaries because I had nothing. Um, But at the same time, it was built on a story that I am, in fact, evil. Right. And that I am a am a reprobate, and there came some shame with that that maybe I brought this upon myself, and that maybe I invited this, and that the only rescue was uh, was some god that was going to take all of this away. But whenever the pain didn't go away, well, there's hidden sin in your life. There's this. There's that. So it didn't create it, but it reinforced it. And the other thing that it robbed from me was the ability to take credit for the good things that I did mm. because God did it all. I was a vessel. Right. Yeah, it's like gaslighting on a grand scale. Yeah. Like basically yeah. Now, blaming you, blaming yourself for things that were out of your control. No, I was about to say, and one thing that I am finding is I am less angry at religion than I used to be. Um, I'm not saying I embrace its tenets, but... I know some people uh, that are Episcopals, for instance, that um, there's something healthy that they're getting from it. Sure. And my child was in a very diverse uh, high school environment. And as an honor student, uh, there were a lot of friends and peers that were uh, Indian or Muslim. And um, Dave's Muslim friends are beautiful young adults. Hmm. And the same goes for uh, some of uh, Dave's friends who were raised in the Hindu and Hindi tradition. Um, It's, 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 it's fascinating once you get past your anger um, to not hate those that think differently. My beef is against those that exercise what they believe in a harmful manner. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
you know, like any corrupt system, you know, something that maybe was potentially helpful gets used by people in power to create harm and to, you know, like enrich oneself at the expense of, of others. And it's a powerful story to uh, to keep people on the hook. I mean, if you wanted someone to buy, you know, a medication, say, for example, from you, and, you know, to do that, you had to convince them that they would never recover and that the only way that they could be healthy is to take this medicine perpetually for the for their entire life. You know, that's a guaranteed customer, right? I mean, you're, right. you're never going to lose that customer. And if you can convince them that you're right about that. So, you know, Christianity in that sense is is like, you know, like I used to experience going to the chiropractor. Like you go once and now you have to keep going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and and it's, you know, it's funny because when I was a minister, um, I always used to, whenever I was uh, clashing with atheists and they would say the world would be better off without religion, blah, 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 blah. Uh, my response always was, you know, religion is the excuse to hate and not the cause of the hate. Mm. And what I'm finding out is on this side of the fence, I am seeing some truth of that because I am seeing in the, um, in certain pockets of the atheist community, I'm seeing misogyny, I'm seeing sexism, I'm seeing uh, transphobia, and I'm seeing people take two things too far um, where uh, you have uh, Islamophobia and you have um, anti-Semitism, which historically has always proven to be a very dangerous thing. Right. Yeah, and and even some of the defenses that I'm reading of um, highly like credibly suspected sexual uh, men who have harmed women in the atheist community. Yeah. Uh, so men who have uh, men who are on the lecture circuit, who are published, who have uh, large followings through their podcast or their radio show or whatever they may have. Right. Yeah. And then the defenses of those men from other people sound very much like, the defenses that you might hear of Catholic priests accused of similar crimes. And, and it just, it's baffling to me that this isn't more apparent that it really is, you know, at some level, at least about defending your tribe and circling the wagons around your people. It doesn't matter the thing that's been done. It matters that they're your people who have done it, not their people. And, and I, you know, you and I lived for decades in a system like that. I'm not interested in that. Like, I left that already once, you know? I, I didn't leave that to go back into a different system that has the same, you know, problems and the same sort of blindness to its own ability to be corrupted or the lack of humility. I just, I can't understand why someone would jettison a whole system that provided social support and take the risk of doing that to, to oneself and community and all the rest to, to then turn around and embrace another system that's doing it. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I don't take part in any of the conventions. I don't take part in any of the atheist communities anymore, not even the clergy association. I don't right. take part in any of these because I, um, I've seen this before. 
And I kind of understand, and I'm not wanting to put myself on the same level of these people, but in some ways I understand uh, people who have survived the Holocaust, look at the American um, political system now and say, guys, there's some things we've seen here before that are very dangerous. Right. Um, in the same way, having been a minister and knowing some of the dirt that some of my peers were guilty of and participants of, and knowing about the Whisper Network there, as I come over to this side of the fence, I started seeing those patterns repeat. And I'm just like, hey, guys, there's a problem here. And it fell on um, deaf ears. So it was just like, all right, I'm pulling the ripcord. I am an I am an agnostic atheist by my belief and life philosophy. But my association is not with any of these organizations. Uh, save yours. And um, being a columnist in Pathos non-religious, right? And I, and this is really a tragedy. I think. I mean, people are free to live their lives however they want. And I'm I'm in a similar way. I, I work for a secular organization, and so I'm involved to that point. And but my work is primarily, if not exclusively, um, around supporting college students and some high school students in their identity formation and value formation as they try to navigate the world as brand new adults um, it, without a religion, which has historically and traditionally uh, been the keeper of the the value systems in societies. You know, we've sort of outsourced our value development to religious groups. And so, you know, we're, on, we're in uncharted waters here where we're in a society now in America that is almost reaching the youngest generations are almost reaching 50% unaffiliated with any religion. And so the question is where and how will young people find their, their ethics and their morals and their values. And of course they'll get that in the ways they've always done it from their families and from their education and from reading and from their friends. But, but that's very, I, I think historically going back as far as Aristotle you know, philosophers and thinkers have have agreed that this isn't enough. Like there needs to be an intentional way that we impart um, critical thinking skills, um, your values, how, you know, how we shape our ethics as an individual. And again, a lot of that comes from family. You're teaching your child how to think, and he's helping you. They're they're helping you um, learn things as well as so there's a mutuality there but in, in and also circling back to our conversation about loneliness and depression and and untreated mental health issues i feel that community is going to in some shape or form need to be a part of that like and it's a shame that see it seems there are so few alternatives for folks that that aren't um religious in the sense of believing in a divine being, you know, they're atheists or agnostics, as you've said, but lack a place to be human together with other people. Do you feel that yeah. at all? Or or, do, or are you kind of thinking that that's over, overdone? No. Okay. Um, here's what I'll say to that. Um, a sense of community is important. That's one of the things that I missed most about church was a tribe. And I tried to find out with atheist groups, and it just wasn't happening, mostly because of um, the triggers of seen this harm before, 
seen what powerful men can do before I'm out. Um, I find that community uh, with parents of transgender and um, and like non gender um, nonconforming. Yeah, and gender nonconforming. Thank you. And it's I find beauty in that coalition, hmm. and I also find beauty in um, in my protest activities and such as that. That is where I find my community right now. Now, my child is fascinating because uh, Dave is finding their community in PRISM, which is uh, similar to the Secular Student Alliance. It's a group of people at uh, college and high school campuses across the country uh, that are all LGBTQ. Hmm, And uh, Dave currently serves as vice president of his college's chapter. Um, that's where the activity is being found most. And that's where, uh, Dave is finding their, um, their torch to, uh, find their own protest and their own voice. And, uh, there's also a huge incentive in getting fellow students, uh, to vote. Mm -hmm. And that's happening in droves. Um, now I, I, you know, I, I, I had actually asked Dave about the secular student Alliance. I remember. And, um, Dave's response wasn't negative to the SSA, but it was just as a pastor's as a former pastor's kid, Mm. uh, Dave's response was, you know what, uh, religion, non-religion, those things don't really register on my radar as much as Mm -hmm. the cause of queer equality. Yeah, it's on the same axis, you know, religion, non-religion is still on that same axis. And I resonate with what Dave is saying, because we do see that, you know, we we see students that are, most of our SSA leaders are involved in other types of activism on their campus as well. And which is always inspiring to see these kids are polymaths, you know, they're doing not only excellent work in their academics, but holding down several club leadership positions and a job. And, you know, it's really, really remarkable. Um, and also very frank and open, to be honest with you, about their own mental health challenges. I mean, it was remarkable. We just announced our 11 scholarship recipients recently. And almost to a one, they spoke about their identity as being non-conforming in some way. And they spoke mm-hmm. about mental health challenges that they faced, um, large and small, you know, if, if, if we can even scale them like that. But, but they've, uh, they, they were very open about who they are. And I think this is an encouraging sign. If, if we can say, like, if, if I could say, oh, yeah, I have, um, you know, childhood onset diabetes, you know, like I don't. But if I did, I don't think I would feel a ton of shame in, like, you know, sharing that information. It's nothing that I did. I just inherited it from my family um, versus saying, oh, yeah, I, I struggle with, you know, bipolar disorder and depression. Um, that's just who I am. You know, that's just who I am. Or I'm on the spectrum. You know, that's who I am. And and that's my reality. And, and my that's my context. It's my lens through which I see the world. Um, I just think it's such an encouraging sign to see young adults owning it and just leading from it, you know, leaning into it and just leading from that space that just gives so much more permission for others to be vulnerable and open about who they are, whether they're queer or lonely or like whatever, whatever it is that we are. We're just humans. We're just like these 
you know, meat sacks that are <laughs> trying to get through the world and enjoy ourselves, you know, and to, to be flourishing people. And, and if I may, um, I think you touched on something that's very important here. And what that is, is uh, with the Secular Student Alliance, you have people that are embracing things and they're running towards something as opposed to being defined by what they're not. Mm, yeah. And um, that, along with good and responsible leadership, is one of the most important things. And, and this is going to bring, if I may, sort of uh, touches on what really concerns me most. Um, February of last year, we had an incident where uh, BuzzFeed News broke a story about Lawrence Krauss. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of that, there was a prominent atheist uh, in the community who is well-respected and has even gone into more feminist causes that um, when he was being questioned by a reporter, uh, an investigative reporter, um, he criticized it horribly. Uh, first, by saying, um, you know, this reporter had no right to call, call me and this is a breach of professional ethics. Mm -hmm. And then said, well, you know, it's just BuzzFeed. Thinking of BuzzFeed as a... Um, Listicles. As a entertainment entity without doing any research to know that between 2014 and 2016, they won National uh, Press Foundation Awards. Right. 2015 was the Sydney Award. 2017, British Journalism Award, the George Polk Award. And they were finalists in 2017 for Pulitzer Prizes in international uh, reporting. Right. I mean, these are... This, there is a serious journalism arm. And the writer in question was Virginia Hughes, mm -hmm. who at the time was um, – she, she led the BuzzFeed science desk. There was a science division. That's something we should embrace. Right. Unfortunately, in this case, she was writing about the darker side of science. Now she's the deputy editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. This is somebody who is a well-respected, well-educated investigative journalism and the thing that i want to say about the contacting people i've taken courses on investigative journalism and investigative journalism and science actually follow a similar process with with traditional news you're saying who what when why and where and how right you're just answering those stories but as an investigative journalism uh journalist you start off with a hypothesis. That's what you're trained to do. You have a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And then you have to work and prove that hypothesis. If it doesn't prove out, you adjust your hypothesis and go in a different direction. It is a very similar process to the scientific process to go from hypothesis to proven theory. Mm -hmm. And then when you put out your story, unlike a normal news story, you don't just say it, you have to show it. And one of that is pursuing your sources. If you don't keep calling those sources to try to get a response, then you end up with an even more troubling thing. So-and-so could not be reached for comment. Or if you want to be passive aggressive as a reporter, you can say so-and-so had no response, which sounds a little darker. This is a professional favor to you to give you the opportunity to say something so that your silent voice 
doesn't get noted with suspicion. Right. That is professional journalism, because if you go back to your editor and you say, I couldn't get a comment, the editor is going to say, knock on the doors, call, call, try again, call. try again. Yeah. Go, go to where they work, get a comment. You have to get a comment. That's all. Virginia was doing. Virginia was following her training. She was pursuing the hypotheses. She was doing her job and doing it well. And to have her led into being doxxed, to have her led into being marginalized, and even being threatened by people who claim to be part of the atheist community was reprehensible. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I said as much on on a Facebook thread and got myself blocked in a hot second. Right. And, and, and I'm using this example because I was one of those people that was blocked. And I'm also a columnist who had a father that uh, worked for the Chicago Tribune as a photojournalist. Hmm. Um, I love journalism. And when I do my columns, though they're 90 percent op ed, I follow journalistic ethics I follow journalistic integrity and I follow the process. And most of my information comes from news journalism and investigative journalism. Those are my sources to formulate my opinions and express them. So they're an educated opinion and they follow a process and a procedure that I hold dear and, you know, either stay in your lane or study the other lane before you criticize it. Yeah, and I, this has been a source of consternation to me as well, because one of the parallel movements to the atheist movement, per se, is the skeptic movement. And a lot of people don't make a, a ton of distinctions between these things. But if you talk to someone who claims to be or identifies, self-identifies as a skeptic, they will quickly remind you that they're not the same, that skepticism is about questioning things. It's about using scientific methods to it to discover knowledge. Um, it's about doubting your conclusions and digging deeper and being curious and um, finding out the facts. You know, it's about questioning uh, hyped up cultural memes like anti-vaxxing and um, UFOs and, you know, whatever have you, like whatever the, the, the trend is at the moment, skeptics say, hmm, I'm not so sure. You know, you should only eat a meat diet. You know, that's the the new thing. Well, I'm not so sure. Okay, so you should only eat mangoes. Like that's the, well, you know, hang on a second. Let's let's think about that. So this is skepticism, you know, and and I can't tell you how many self described skeptics I have watched just be so credulous about the most ridiculous things that a moment's googling would, you know. A freshman in high school could figure out the answer. So, you know, that is deeply frustrating to me. And I don't think it's I think we should continue being skeptics. I think we should continue. We should do better at it, not not worse. And, and I, you know, unfortunately, though, the gatekeepers of skepticism um, have a lot of influence and it's a real disappointing and, and, thing. And the biggest problem of that is um, as and I can now say this as a victim of sexual assault. I know what it feels like to be the victim. Right. Now, I don't understand it from a female's perspective because a woman endures sexism, microaggressions daily, yeah, daily. And 
um, when we turn it into a bunch of little fanboys that are putting the woman on trial and calling and putting her through judgment, putting her through the ringer and, and not respecting her in the name of skepticism, that's being a bully. That is uh, playing word games and that is diminishing and you are not showing humanity. You're not showing skepticism. You're just being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. You are hurting people and you're being misogynistic and you're being part of the problem and you are following the same playbook that the evangelicals are following in the wake of sexual molestation. Yeah, and it's not even good skepticism, as I was saying, too, because it's, you know, when you look at the the context and the um, the history of reports of sexual violence, you know, you realize that only between two and four or two and six percent of cases are fabricated, you know, so it's like well over 90 percent of the cases are are true. And when you have multiple corroborating um, witnesses or testimonies to the thing, it's it drops to like 99% of the cases turn out to be real and true. So, you know, it's just not even good skepticism to, to, to trot out this thing like, well, what about due process? You know, as if, you know, Lawrence Krauss is on trial in a court of law. Um, we're just talking, we're not talking about a court of law. We're talking about should he be a guest at a prominent um, conference, or even a, even not a prominent conference, just a conference where there's going to be, you know, unsuspecting guests there that he might prey on. You know, he doesn't have to be convicted by a trial judge uh, in order to be disqualified from being present at a conference. You know, like that's that's two different things. We always have to err on the side of caution, and we always have to err. Well, maybe not always, but this is my feeling on it. Um, we have to err on the side of caution. We have to lean towards the most vulnerable. Yeah, protecting um, people. If we're able to call ourselves a humanist community, if we're able to call ourselves moral. And we now live in a society where in, what, 2017, a woman was killed on U.S. soil fighting Nazis. Hmm. What have we become? Hmm. Um, it is now okay. I mean, it, well, it's always been okay to be racist, but it's now becoming even more okay to be racist. It's now becoming more okay to be misogynistic. My child's civil rights were stripped away without w- within a month hmm. of Trump being in office by Nancy DeVos. Yeah. And that's scary. I, you know, my, my kid is fighting literally for their lives. Right. And coming out with the mental health you know what i know some prominent atheists that are very skeptical of that too in an unhealthy way where you're treated differently and you face the stigma even here and there's something very scientific that's happening to my brain and don't judge me don't don't slam me and don't make it hard for me to talk about this because right now I'm just speaking to the world. I don't care what they believe. If you've suffered trauma, here's my story. Let's talk. Yeah, That's all I want to do because I want us to be able to say it's okay that I'm not okay. And there's a lot of people, Christian, atheist, Muslim, whatever, that are saying it's not okay to be not okay. No, it is okay to be not okay. Mm. 
thank you so much for that. And I, I think your story is so powerful. It's, um, you know, it's in the written word as you've written on your blog and your column. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so folks can follow you. Please do follow Pat's um, transparent... Um, Transparent um, Expedition on Patheos. Pa- Transparent Expedition. And I'll put the link. You can subscribe so that you get a notification when you post a new post. And uh, f- you know, follow him on social media. You have a really unique voice in the sense that you, know, you do have um, a gender non-conforming child that you've done a re- you know, just a, a beautiful job um, parenting. And of course, none of us parents are perfect. We always make mistakes. But You've been so open about your desire and your commitment to honoring their who they are and um, and and also your own personal struggle and journey to to heal from the trauma that was inflicted upon you and um, it's just it's a really moving story and I just want to thank you so much for sharing it. I appreciate that. The road ahead is one of being honest with myself and others, which I historically have not done very well. And for the first time in my life, trying to believe in myself. And I appreciate the opportunity to come back here again because I listened to that first interview and I cringe because I recognize somebody who was not okay and wasn't ready to come to grips with it. Mm. And being able to simply be me here today meant a lot. Thank you. And I also want to just say, if you're listening and you're struggling, um, there's there are a lot of resources out there to um, to support you. You don't need to do this alone. Um, keep listening, and in the um, in the closing of the show, I'll share um, some places that you can find the help that you need. Um, don't do this alone, and we want you to stick around. So um, reach out. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of The X-Files. And thank you to Pat Green for courageously telling his story. I think I speak for all of us when I say, we're so glad you're still here, Pat. We love you. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, there is help. Please reach out and talk to someone. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Please do not suffer alone. Call today and get help. To learn more about the X-Files and Life After God, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Thank you for spending a portion of your day with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.